This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. If you're a fan of podcasts, you would no doubt have heard the voice of Guy Raz. He's the host of some of the most popular podcasts on national public radio in the US, namely the TED Radio Hour, How I Built This, and Wow in the World. He joins me on the show today, all the way from California. Welcome to the show, Guy. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Malaysian audiences would be most familiar with your work on the TED Radio Hour, which is also syndicated on BFM. But before you ventured into hosting your own podcasts, you began as a news reporter with NPR. How did you get started in radio journalism and what drew you to audio as a medium compared to, say, print or television? Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be um, to be speaking to you and to folks in Malaysia. We're so excited that we have fans uh, in Malaysia and, and all across the country um, in there because it's, um, you know, we, we do our show here in the United States and we don't always get a chance to interact with our, our fans and our listeners overseas. And um, we know that we have fans and listeners in Malaysia. And it's so cool to get a chance to um, to talk with you about what we do. But um, I guess the, the short version of the story is I always loved audio. You know, radio is one of these mediums where um, you can tell a story through the mind's eye. You know, we all experience a radio story in a different way. When you read something or you see something, it's right in front of you. Um, but when you when you hear it, it's like um, a television screen in your head. And that was really attractive to me, this idea that you could paint a picture in someone's mind and that they could develop a connection directly to you through that experience. And, and that's really how it, how it started for me. You spent several years uh, in the early part of your career as a foreign correspondent. Um, you were NPR's bureau chief in Berlin at the very young age of 25. You've reported from over 40 countries, covered wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You, were, you spent two years with the CNN in Jerusalem. So looking back, how did this era of covering international news shape the rest of your career? You know, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but what what it was really important for was developing a deeper sense of empathy. I covered a lot of conflicts, and I met people from all walks of life, from all religious backgrounds and ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Um, I grew up in California, and I grew up in a pretty diverse community, but um, but everybody was American, or their parents might have been immigrants, but the children were were American. And being overseas and learning about how people live, how they love, and how they how they experience the world, um, it, it opened my eyes, but it also kind of reassured me that there are so many commonalities. You know, people love their children and their families in exactly the same way. It doesn't matter if you're in a village in Afghanistan or in Berlin. Um, and when I was overseas and I was able to experience people in sometimes very challenging environments, war zones, um, conflict zones. Um, you're able to sort of see the depth of, of both human depravity and human generosity. And I think that experience really helped me to just become a more empathetic person, which, as I say, wasn't, wasn't necessarily something I was conscious of at the time, but something that really helped me in my career, strangely enough, because it it gave me uh, more of an ability to try and connect with people, especially people who didn't 
I, who, with whom I didn't share personal experiences, but but was able to kind of listen and hear them out. And I think the most important job of a journalist and a reporter is the job of listening. Our job is to bear witness, but also to honor people's stories by just hearing them out. Um, questions are important, but what's left unsaid is often more important. And by interviewing thousands of people for reports over the years when I was overseas, I was really able to hone that skill of listening. It's um, it's not a gift. It's not a talent. It's a, it's a skill that anybody can learn by just doing it and by being present and listening to, to the words coming out of, out of someone's mouth. Right. And I suppose listening is something that's even more needed in these very fraught times. You, you've been in the media industry your whole career. You know, after your stints abroad, you were, in, you were a military correspondent with NPR and you were also the weekend host of uh, NPR's flagship program, All Things Considered. Do you think it's tougher to be in media or to be a journalist now than it was before? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So I'll start with the um, the no part. Um, you know, when I started out, you had to go through a gatekeeper to be on the radio or to be in print or to be on television. The gatekeeper was a, a major media organization. You know, a newspaper could only operate if 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 it had the funds to to print and publish and typeset your your work. The radio um, was a medium that was only available to license holders. Um, same with television, that you had to go to one of those institutions and try and you know claw your way inside and convince people to give you a chance uh, to to put your voice out there. Um, so in that in that sense, it was it was harder. Um, and then and today, um, you know, there are an infinite number of outlets. I mean, in theory. Anybody with a Twitter account or a, an Instagram account can broadcast themselves live, uh, can broadcast their ideas to the world, and anybody with access to the internet can start a blog. Now, you're not going to reach thousands or millions of people. Um, I mean, some will, but m- most people won't. You might only reach a, a few dozen or maybe, if you're lucky, a few hundred. But that barrier to entry really changed um, with the explosion of the internet age, you know, where Anybody could get access to a platform. Um, and, and so in that sense, it's, it's easier. Now, on the other side, it's also much harder in, in the United States, particularly where, you know, media, um, traditional media landscape has, has become more diffuse. So, for example, you know, when I started out, there was really no question of what was true and what was not true. You, it was if it was on television or if it was in print. It was probably true, and if it wasn't true, those organizations would really go out of their way to correct those errors. Today, there is so much misinformation. You know, we're living at a time with infinite, infinite access to information. So on the one hand, that's amazing, and and it's democratized information, but at, at the same time, it means that it's much harder to parse truth from fiction, it's much easier for people to become manipulated. Now, you can find the truth if you want to, but in a sea of information, finding the truth is much more difficult than it was when I started. And so as a reporter, especially if you're working for an organization like BFM or you know, the New York Times or 
The Guardian newspaper, it, it becomes that much harder to convince people that actually what you're trying to do is, is responsible journalism. And so we're living at a time when public trust of mainstream media has, is shifting, um, particularly in the United States and probably in Malaysia too. And that's troubling to me. That's, that's where I think the role of a reporter committed to truth, committed to listening and committed to being fair is so much more important than ever before. In talking about this um, public trust deficit of mainstream media, how do you think we – how can we go about rectifying that? Whose responsibility is it to sort of restore that public trust? Is it on the journalists? Is it on sort of regulators? Is it on governments? I mean, what do you think is the way forward to rebuild that kind of trust? It's such a hard question to answer because I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I – and I think people who say they have the answers um, uh, are, are probably um, <laughs> are probably deluding themselves a little bit. Um, I think it's a combination of all of those things. You know, we we in the United States value and uh, venerate the First Amendment, which is um, which is the, the 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 First Amendment to our Constitution, which is the right to free speech. But with that, it comes a lot of misinformation and a lot of protected speech that is untrue, hurtful, damaging, um, incendiary, violent, racist, etc. Um, what do you do about that in a country that values unlimited, unrestricted speech? You know, some people don't want to talk about uh, how you regulate speech because they fear that once you start to regulate hateful speech or untrue speech, you begin to regulate the truth as well. And I don't have a good answer to that dilemma. I, I really don't. I think that we are living at a time when all we can do as individuals who are committed to a better world is to do our best to, ampl- to amplify the truth and to question our own assumptions. What I did as a reporter and what I learned as a reporter was you will go into any scenario or any situation with a series of biases. Everyone listening to this conversation now has biases. It's not because they're bad. It's because of the way we were raised. It's because of the environments we grew up in. It's because of the culture we were exposed to, the music and the television programs, the friends we made. And so all of those inputs have an impact on the kinds of people we are. As a reporter, you can't be a robot. We're not AIs. We can't go into a conflict zone or a, or, or a, a country or a story without having some kind of unconscious bias. But what we can do is question our own assumptions and fight against our own biases in an effort to try and bring out the truth and a, and a fair accounting of what we see. Um, and, you know, if we can, if we can kind of, you know, if we can kind of inundate the world with truth and with accuracy, then ultimately my hope is that the the fiction and the propaganda will be drowned out and that that we we who tell the truth will ultimately win i'm speaking to guy raz the host of how i built this ted radio hour and wow in the world on npr when we come back we're going to speak to guy about his ventures into podcasting stay tuned bfm 89.9 
We're going to turn our attentions now to your podcasting shows, Guy. Let's talk about How I Built This, the second podcast you created after the TED Radio Hour. Now, How I Built This launched in 2016, and it's a business podcast, but not in the conventional sense. You interview founders of huge companies and the biggest brands about their journey to financial success. Talk to us about the aim behind this podcast. What drove you to focus on businesses? You know, I was really thinking about stories more so than business. Um, I mean, dramatic stories have an arc, right? And in business, I thought we could find uh, those narrative arcs. You know, we could find those moments of crisis and of uh, of triumph and of sadness and of loss and of sacrifice and and of joy, you know, all within the, 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 the arc of founding a business. And so that's really how it, it started. It started out, you know, how can we tell dramatic stories and, and what prism can we tell them through? You can tell some of these stories through other prisms, art and music. But to me, there was something about business that was appealing because, you know, especially when it comes to big businesses and big companies and products that we all know, like Google or Coca-Cola, you know, or Ford or, um, you know, things that we have a connection to, things that we may like, things that we may not like, but nonetheless affect our lives. And so that's really what I wanted How I Built This to be. It, It happens to be a business show, but I say happens because it's really about human experiences. And um, it's really designed to kind of um, give people a prism into the inner life and lives of other people who are ordinary people but who manage to create pretty extraordinary things. In an interview with the New York Times recently, you had said that you chose to feature only businesses that you liked on the show. Could you elaborate on your selection process? Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm a little uncomfortable with that because it's not entirely accurate. What, what, what I, I think what I think I wish I would have explained a bit better is that, you know, how I built this is now a very widely listened to show. It it has a big audience. And um and so we feel very acutely our responsibility to this idea of entrepreneurship. And what I mean by that is because we have such a big audience, we also feel like we need to represent the best of what entrepreneurship should be. And so that means that we look for founders who are ethical, who are kind. Uh, we look for founders who treat their people well, who come to the who are willing to come to the interview in a spirit of generosity, who are willing to share their failures and their crises, their darkest moments. Um, because it's a show about vulnerability. And there are certainly many successful business leaders who, uh, and founders who just um, aren't like that. They're not willing to talk about their failures. And so we generally shy away from those founders because we want people listening to feel like they can connect with that person, that they hear that person and they say, that person is like me. I have been, you know, lying on the bathroom floor, crying my eyes out because I thought I was a failure. We, we don't want founders to be superheroes. We want, we want people to understand that they are real people with real emotions and real ups and downs and highs and lows who struggled and who 
eventually figured out a way out of that struggle. And, and so that's – when we say we only pick people we like, it's, it's a little bit misleading. We pick people who represent a set of values that we think are important to promote to people about entrepreneurship. Right. I liked how you said it's not about portraying superheroes. You're depicting very relatable experiences in entrepreneurship that everybody in the business goes through. On that note, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from CEOs and founders that have made it? Yeah, I've learned a lot. I mean, I think the the key lesson I've learned is that there's no – I don't believe that there's an entrepreneurship gene. Sure, there are some founders who are more sort of naturally willing to take bigger risks or to put it all on the line. But by and large, most of them learn these skills. They learn these character traits by doing it and by failing and by figuring out a way through it. Failure is very hard. It's hard for all of us. Nobody likes to experience failure in real time. But failure is so crucial. You know, you cannot really understand success until you have understood and withstood failure. And that's, I think that's the key lesson that I have learned from all of these founders, which is that failure comes with the territory. Failure does not have to be catastrophic, and it's not an end point. It's often a way station, uh, you know, on the journey to what eventually is success. And so through these these different interviews, what I've ultimately discovered is that none of them, none of these entrepreneurs and founders are superheroes. None of them are. They're all ordinary people who figured out a way either through luck or sheer perseverance to plow through the hard times. I'm curious, Guy, given the projects that you're currently involved in, do you see yourself more as an entrepreneur or a journalist? You know, I see myself as a combination of many things. I'm an intrapreneur, which is that I've created programs within NPR, and and I'm very proud of that. I'm an entrepreneur where I have my own production company and my own programs that I produce as well. Um, You know, I think journalist is a – it's a tricky word uh, because I was certainly a journalist and reporter for most of my career. but I also uh, – I'm careful about using that word because I I am trying to bring out a story. I'm trying to pull out a story from somebody and I'm trying to do it in a way that is transparent and open and, of course, accurate. So I'm using journalistic techniques in the way I bring that story out. But I'm not um, – I'm not a forensic interview. I don't bring somebody on and grill them. You know, like you would a politician, um, because to me, you know, when somebody agrees to come onto the show, um, the first thing is they can't. They, they, we we don't accept any rules or parameters. We we say to the person, look, you have to be willing to answer any question we ask you, and nothing is off limits. But we will have this conversation in context and in a respectful way. Um, and so we always say to people, look, there there are going to be questions in here that are going to be difficult. And we're going to focus on some tough times and maybe things you are even embarrassed about. But we want to hear your take on what happened. We want the full context. Um, and, and so that's what we try to do. I'd like to end the interview on this note, Guy. There's a question you've asked a lot of entrepreneurs on your show, and I want to turn the tables on to you this time. Would you attribute your success to luck or skill? 100% to luck. 
and I'll, I'll tell you why. I was lucky to be born um, in the United States, not to say it's better than other countries, but there were many opportunities that came with that um, being born in the U.S., um, certainly opportunities to study and to uh, and to go work at NPR. I was lucky that somebody at NPR happened to get a stack of resumes in 1997 for an internship, and mine was on top, and that was the first number they called. Um, I was lucky to <laughs> to run into uh, somebody at NPR who made a call on my behalf, and and that call enabled me to begin writing for the Washington City paper, which was where I sort of cut my teeth. So throughout my career. Um, there have been things that have happened by chance. I took advantage of those chances. I was very fortunate to be able to do so. But I'm a big believer in luck. I think that um, luck plays an enormous role. I, I, I definitely think that you want to be on the lookout for those lucky breaks. And I think most people, most of us, will encounter some luck in our lives. And the trick, I think, is to keep your eyes open and wait for those lucky moments and then grab them. I've been speaking to Guy Raz, the host of How I Built This, TED Radio Hour, and Wow in the World on NPR. Thanks so much, Guy, for speaking to us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.